This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. All right, welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Super excited for today's guest, Philip Krim, the co-founder and CEO of Casper. A little bit about Philip, as the CEO and co-founder of Casper, Philip Krim leads the company's comprehensive business strategy, expansion, and vision for the future. In 2014, after recognizing that working professionals were placing an increased value on health and fitness, but neglecting sleep, Krim helped to create the company with the goal of reimagining the sleep industry. Driven by a direct-to-consumer model, Casper netted $1 million in its first 28 days. A serial entrepreneur, Philip has founded two previous startups where he focused on evolving consumer and e-commerce trends. He launched his very first business out of his dorm room at the University of Texas, Austin, where he earned his bachelor's in marketing. And perhaps the most fascinating and important thing to his bio is Philip also serves on the board of directors at the Travis Mannion Foundation. We are so happy to have Philip here today to talk a little bit more about his journey, entrepreneurship, and um, what it means to dive out there and, and start your own business, which is so fascinating to me. So welcome, Philip. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. And um, as I was sharing with you, I think, I think this is an important episode because I, I shared with you a little bit before, there is a tremendous, I see hunger and appetite, especially for our um, military community, for veterans that are transitioning out of active duty to kind of take that next step and do something on their own, start their own business. And, and I think a lot of them just have that entrepreneurial spirit. And so I'm excited to talk to you today about that path for you. And, and I think that our audience is going to respond to it as well. So let's talk about entrepreneurship. I mean, you clearly have a history of that. And not just in your own right, but from your parents too. It was something I think that was taught to you at a young age. How, how was that? What did they do for you? And, and what did your parents do? Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I'm happy to hear that you think the audience will, will uh, respond well to entrepreneurship because I think uh, that makes total sense to me. Like to me, one of the you know top qualities or traits uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship that you need is is just uh, a bias towards action. And I think that's something that certainly, if you're serving our country, you likely have that. Um, and I think it's just something that that you need kind of uh, to be innate to you if you're going to have the entrepreneurial itch and if you're going to go down that path. And uh, it's something that I definitely witnessed firsthand growing up um, with my family and, and uh, my dad in particular. Uh, he had had that entrepreneurial itch. Um, you know, when he was growing up, he, he started working on fishing boats out of Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn, New York, and eventually had his own and, and ran a couple of them. And again, it, it was just that kind of bias for action about always seeing what could come next and then run at, running after that. 
Um, and I think that's what's so exciting to me. And then my, my dad had been in a number of different businesses, um, but the, the commonality is just, uh, you know, seeing an opportunity, seeing something that you think could be fun, could be challenging, could be uh, educational and uh, just you know, biasing towards leaning in and, and leaning forward towards that. And then just trying to figure it out. And I, I think that's the other thing that um, I, I think commonalities uh, between you know, the different things that I saw my parents do, the different things that I've done is, is just, um, you know, there's no playbook for this. There's no recipe to how to go build a company that you want to build. And instead, you just have to, to be comfortable in the uncomfortable and, and commit to figuring it out and, you know, taking one step at a time, but having a view on where you want to go so that you know you're, you're heading in the right direction. And to me, that's fun. It, it's, uh, it's daunting, it's scary, and it's, it's scarier at different moments of time than others. But uh, I think that's also what makes kind of, you know, going and creating your own journey so much fun and, and why, I, why I have enjoyed an entrepreneurial journey so much. I love that bias for action. And I think that's so true. You know, I, I have such tremendous respect for individuals that come up with an idea, no matter how big or small it is, and just run towards it. You know, and I think that's the, the biggest thing, you know, in terms of being an entrepreneur is like, Every, anyone can come up with the idea, but you know, it really takes a certain type of person to action off of it, to say, okay, um, we, we talk about it a lot at work. You know, we, we talk about, all right, there's too many ideas. Who's going to actually get it done, right? Like, let's stop talking ideas and let's start doing the hard work it takes to, to make this happen. So, um, yeah, I think that's such a good point. Uh, and, and, we joke that like ideas are the easy part. It's, it's the doing that's the hard part. And, and sometimes it's too many good ideas get in the way and you want to try to go run after so many different opportunities. And I'm sure you guys see this within your organization and we see it all the time. And, and that's where, you know, you, you have to take the less fun uh, hat on and, and say like, no, we can't go after these 10 good ideas. We need to pick the two best ideas that are really going to be impactful. What, what are those two? And then only focus on those. And I, I think that's, um, you know, that's just always the challenge is, is what can we really act on that's going to be impactful that we know we can build from. Um, but the, the idea part is, is the fun part. It's the, the easy part. It's, it's what we all get excited about. But it, it's actually rolling up your sleeves, getting, getting your hands dirty to go build or do or create uh, something that, that is the tougher part. And that's where you see you know, great founding teams and great managers and great executives, I, I think really kind of separate themselves as, as folks who can really drive that action around the ideas that, that um, you know, we, we know will make the biggest impact. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your first company. You're in your dorm room at the University of Texas at Austin, and you form the Merit Group in January of 2003, correct? Yes, although I, I think it's funny. It's like whenever you read about someone's background, it always seems so orderly and specific and, and this thing led to this thing and you woke up and did this. And so, you know, it's not like I had this epiphany and one day woke up and, and formed this company to go work on it. Uh, it was more of a, I didn't want to get a traditional summer job. And so I had to figure out a way to make money. And I, you know, I put myself through college and, and was lucky to have some scholarships there. But still still uh, wanted to kind of avoid the traditional summer route. And so uh, this was early 2000s. Uh, I was reading a lot about the internet and e-commerce and obviously using it um, in, in school and uh, realized uh, something called dropshipping. And, and 
that if I could figure out how to take an order online and, and generate the demand for the e-commerce site that someone else could do the fulfillment and I would never have to physically touch the goods. Um, and so I, I found some drop shippers throughout the country. I called them up and, and tried to hide the fact that I was a college student and said, you know, I'm going to build a website and sell some of your products on it. If you can do the fulfillment, you know, I'll handle the, you know, customers and everything on the sales and service side. Um, and I started tinkering around with building websites. So I taught myself HTML and, and I built these websites and uh, figured out what it wasn't. It, this was before Google. So th there were, you know, different ways to advertise online um, and, and just started trying different things. And some of them worked out pretty well. And, and so I was able to generate some sales, get the orders placed, handle the customers. And that's when I first learned about, you know, customer service and sales and dealing with in consumers and how to sell things. Uh, and so it was really fun. And, and fortunately, it, it worked out well enough where I could build a company around it. And so that was my focus uh, while I was in school and for a few years afterwards. So you're running this business that you essentially started because you didn't want to take a traditional summer job. And it becomes a little bit successful. And you keep it going throughout the rest of your, your college, uh, your time in, in school. And do you graduate from college thinking like, I, I mean, I know what I'm doing. I, I founded the Merit Group. This is my business and I'm going to just grow it. Like, is that the intent or are you already thinking like, what's next? You know, uh, I'm trying to think, I, you know, I don't know exactly what I was thinking at the time. I knew there were a few constraints. I knew my parents were, were certain that I needed to get a degree and they were right. And so I, I ended up going the, the five-year route in college to make sure I did get the degree while I was working full-time as well. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I moved back. This this was in Austin. I moved to Houston for another year. I knew that I didn't want to be in Houston forever, so I, I then moved to New York. Uh, and with New York, I you know decided to look for other opportunities, and that's where I just started kind of uh, spending more time in the the venture and entrepreneurial community within New York to to learn what was going on and learn about different startups and um, you know how people were investing in startups and and uh, so I, I guess I, I always uh like to to make sure that i'm being challenged and learning and and so i i knew that i was going to go on to kind of keep pushing myself to do something else and i also knew that you know with with that business um it felt like it was getting harder and harder and not easier and easier and and you know those are lessons that i've carried to today that you you can't be complacent and something that works one day doesn't mean that it's going to work the next day and in, in, in this business in particular you know online advertising was getting more and more expensive so the business was getting harder and not easier. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I was always open-minded about what could happen and where to go and how to keep learning and try new things. And I, I think that's also part of being an entrepreneur is, is, you know, companies aren't the same company that you start and then that scale and then grow over time. You know, you have to constantly reinvent yourself. And, you know, even with my most recent company, Casper, you know, there, there's very palpable different kind of chapters of the business that, feel different, that require a different focus, require a different skill set to be successful in. And the same thing is I think about like my personal kind of entrepreneurial journey, like th there were definitely highs and lows and things that worked and didn't work. And, you know, I was lucky to get my family involved in the first business so that I could um, also have the time to graduate school, but that also poses its own set of challenges. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant learning and again it, it all looks pretty when you read about it or look back but it, it definitely wasn't in the time and you know those are things that i think make you smarter and and more experienced down the road and so uh you know that that journey 
takes you down a specific path and, and, you know, can't look back other than to, to learn from it and hopefully not make the same mistakes twice. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Casper a little bit. And I'll never forget, there was something the first time I met you, went to your office in New York, and we're talking about Casper. And, and I was very familiar with the company. I actually owned a Casper mattress before I even knew who you were. Um, and, and I sat down and I, I remember asking you something like, so you started this mattress. I said mattress company and you said sleep company. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. And then... Another thing you said to me that I found so interesting is you talked about how you tried to find an industry that you could disrupt. And you were talking about, and it made so much sense to me, you know, the, the mattress industry. Before you came around, you would literally have to go into a sleepies or a department store and buy a mattress and lie down on the mattress and decide which mattress you wanted. And you've revolutionized this industry where you can now go online, pick your mattress out, and it's delivered in a box. And I love the fact that, you know, I mean, you kind of said to me, it was, was not so much the in, it was not so much the product, but you know, what industry could I disrupt that there was a need for? And you talked a lot about like the health and, and wellness aspect. And, and that's so huge and it's so important, but nobody was putting this emphasis on sleep. It was like, eating better, taking better care of yourself with physical fitness, but sleep is by far the most important component. That's, that's changed. I mean, I think people have evolved to know how important sleep is, and it is a part of when you talk about your, your physical well-being that, that's being talked about. But I think you had a big part to do with that. And when you talk about your company, let, walk us back, number one, through the beginning of Casper, like the beginning phases, how you decide... I'm going to send mattresses out in a box because I don't know, you know, what was it? Eight years ago or when you founded the company, what, 2014, give or take, right? Around there? We started working on it 2013. And, okay. you know, th- there were some things that, uh, there's always like an element of, of kind of serendipity on why things like come together. And so back in 2013, um, I'm one of five co-founders in, in the business. Uh, and again, this is just trying to take lessons learned in the past and, and applying to the future. So um, I had done the solo founder thing. I, I, you know, for some people that's right. And, and I learned a lot doing that. But, but, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something where I'd work with some really smart other people, you know, day one to really build something. And the other thing that I learned just in reading more about, um, you know, other great companies and founders was... Uh, you know, the, the truly inspired businesses start with a really big vision and then um, kind of execute that one day at a time. But they always remember kind of the North Star on why they did it. And, and I think that's important because, you know, things get tough, things get challenging. And, and if you have that North Star in the beginning, then it, it just helps you remember why you, you wanted to start the business, why you wanted to, to, you know, do what you're doing. And so for us, um, First and foremost, it was definitely that I, I just wanted to work with these four other guys. Uh, they were incredibly smart. Uh, they, they all had a different kind of angle on why they got excited by the idea of Casper. And it was that the conversations around the idea that I think got us all excited, but also clarified what we wanted to do. So, you know, my co-founder, Neil, his dad's a sleep doctor. So he knew things about sleep that I never knew. And so that was amazing. 
Um, one of my co-founders, Jeff, who's our product designer, he had worked at IDEO for years and he had studied sleep and ergonomics. And so he knew why some of the designs in the mattress space existed, but had nothing to do with getting the best night of sleep possible. And so we just said, like, there's no brand that stands for a better night of sleep. And there's no brand that kind of connects those dots. And we said, like, if you want to go sleep better, what store do you go to? And you have to think about it. Whereas if I said, you need to go run faster, you're going to go check out Nike or Adidas. Or if I said, you know, you should eat better, you're going to go, you know, Whole Foods and, and start to think about the quality of your foods. But if I said you need to sleep better, there's no brand that you trust. There's no brand kind of helping you learn about how to get a better night of sleep. And that's what we said we wanted to create. And, and we just started with like a, a simple premise that we, we didn't want to play the games that were prevalent in the industry. We didn't want to trick consumers to buying our products. We just wanted to have an authentic connection with them. And so that, that's where the conversation started back in 2013. And then we said, well, if we're going to do this, what, what's the most important aspect? And a mattress, it turns out, is literally and figuratively foundational to a good night of sleep. And also probably the biggest and most broken part of, of you know, any product that touches sleep. And so let's go figure out how to make the mattress buying experience better. But, but we had, you know, even with day one, like focus on the mattress, but then let, let's go out from there. And how do we help people with better pillows and better sheets and, you know, better lighting products and, and content and everything that could help you sleep better. And so that's where we've, we've uh, started to play in over the last uh, six years, six and a half years. Um, but it, it still feels like we're just getting going. Like we, we really do want to build that long-term generational brand and business that defines it. And we still talk to this day, like, you know, when, when Phil Knight started Nike, uh, it wasn't normal to wake up and go for a run in the morning. Like that, that was a, a cultural change that his company and his vision helped catalyze and accelerate. And like, that, that's kind of what we want to do. And when we started Casper, people were just starting to track their sleep. So Fitbits and Jawbones were just becoming a thing. We also said like, it, it was no longer the cultural cool thing to do about bragging about pulling all-nighters like we did in college. You know, it was the opposite. It's like, you know what, I'm going to stop working because I'm going to get a better night of sleep. And that's going to help me be more creative or smarter, whatever it is. And those are the themes that we want to help perpetuate and accelerate. So you start Casper and you guys net a million dollars in the first 28 days. When that happens, is it an epiphany where you're like, we're onto something? I mean, do you automatically know that, that this is something, because you talk about the Mara company, it was like a slow roll. You really had to push and, and you see almost this overnight success. What does that do for you? And what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned from that? And in the first two years following that? You know, it's funny. We, we talk about like a, a bias for action is one quality. Another quality that uh, I think is important is uh, paranoia. It's, so it's always like, what can go wrong next? Right. And, you know, you're watching the website as the orders come in and that's like really exciting. And then you're like, uh oh, like, how are we going to fill these orders? How are we going to like do right by these customers and where are these orders coming from and how do we replicate that? And so uh, I don't know, my, my bias was just like immediately uh, all the things that could go wrong. And this is another one where you just kind of have to handle what's thrown at you. And, and we were delayed on shipping, you know, six weeks in our, our earliest days. But fortunately, we had customers that were like really empathetic and they were really there to support the brand. And they knew we were a startup and, and we apologized and we were transparent about everything. And one of my co-founders had the brilliant idea, like, let's send them an aero bed so that if they need something to sleep on, we'll just buy it on Amazon and send it to them. And that worked until Amazon shut us down because they thought we were reselling it, which we weren't. But 
we, we just tried to like creatively problem solve things that popped up and, and we knew that if customers turned on us, it was over. And that was the most important thing to us. So, you know, as exciting as, as watching the register ring, I, I would say like, no one said like, Oh, we're onto something huge here. We were all just saying like, how do we not mess this up? Because uh, it seems like it could be special, but there's so many things that could go wrong. And so we had to go, you know, convince our manufacturers to sell to us and, and give us more capacity. And that was tough. And we had to, make sure we were shipping and making sure the technology worked just to communicate with customers. And so it, it's really just, uh, you know, again, kind of putting one foot in front of the other to, to make sure it doesn't fall apart. And, you know, some days it still feels like we're doing that. So uh, it's, uh, it's always a challenge. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I love um, that you guys have done is that I love the, the partnerships with other companies. You know, I love that, um, you can go on and I'm trying to think of, because it was actually how I found out about Casper. And the, the, the furniture company itself is blanking on me, but I went to buy a bed. Uh, West Elm. Oh, it was West Elm. That's, that's what it is. So I went on to West Elm to buy a bed and it was like, add on. Well, do you want a mattress? Here's Casper mattresses. And I'm like, what is this? And, and I thought, what a great, business model like what a great way to um to have people learn about your company and i think you guys have since then you've latched on to other businesses too for, with that same model correct i know i think it's raymore flanagan you were in um yeah. and um because i was just in there the other day helping my aunt and uncle pick out furniture and they were like, what mattresses should we get? And I'm like, uh, Casper mattresses. And there you were right, right there in Flanagan. So, but I love that. Um, I love again, that collaboration with other businesses to help draw the, drive the attention, uh, to what you guys were doing. And, and when do you get to the point where you start coming up with these ideas for how you branch out? And, and I imagine that it's constant development and you're constantly thinking of new things to generate um, more awareness and drive more um, consumers to the business. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something that we're always thinking about. And, and looking back, you know, I, I think one of the things we always saw very deeply about was just the power of the brand and how do we develop a brand that really punches above its weight class relative to the you know, age and size of our business. So you know, the fact that we were able to partner with one of the country's biggest furniture retailers, West Elm, when we were, I think, one or two years old, uh, not even two years old, was amazing. And they loved the brand, they loved what we stood for. And we, we did an amazing business with them. Like we, we, I think, doubled or tripled their mattress business fairly quickly just by, by promoting you know, a brand that, that is strong asleep with bed frames that they're already selling a ton of. And so they, they were super excited. and It was a great partnership. And then I think we might not have even been three years old, but maybe it's three years old. And we uh, were able to partner with American Airlines to provide sleep products for all business and first class seats on domestic flights. This is, you know, the country's largest airline chose, uh, you know, a, a small company, you know, at the time, Casper, three years old, not even to partner with, to, to re-outfit all of their first class seats with sleep products. And so it was just mind blowing and it helped us build awareness. And we, we were super flattered and fortunate that they saw the, the potential. So I love to know, because I always talk about, you know, even us as a, a, a veteran service organization, 
Um, we've grown exponentially over the past 13 years. And we always talk about this idea, like, are we legitimate enough to be able to walk into that room and sell the work that we do, the impact we're having? How do you, as a small startup, get in front of American Airlines and have them believe in your product? Because I think that's fascinating. And I think to some degree, that's what separates, um, you know, success from non-success. Like the idea that you are confident enough that you're going to get in front, not only that you're going to do it, but how do you do that? How do you go through that process? Yeah. The, the funny thing is like, um, now that I've seen it happen a few times, it really, it's, it just takes two people connecting on it, which, you know, if, if you've done the work or you have the right kind of setup, you'll, you'll get in the room and then it takes, you know, an executive sponsor to really see the, the potential. And then it, it happens and even at giant organizations. Um, and I, I, so I think it, it comes down to, you know, how you connect with people and, and, you know, with, with the, you know, Travis Manion foundation, such an amazing cause. It has such a wonderful group of people behind it and running it. It's a really compelling story. And so that's where, brands or foundations or businesses can really, you know, going back to the, the phrase I used earlier, like punch above its weight class and partner with giant organizations, because there's something really there. There's, a, you know, an authentic truth. There's an authentic uh, kind of connection there that that's emotional, that, that connects with people and consumers. And so I think that's where, you know, going back to, to having the big vision around building the world's first sleep brand, you know, American Airlines could pick anyone, but they liked our vision. They liked what we stood for. They realized that the brand was authentic, that their consumers would would see it and understand it and connect with it. And so, uh, you know, once you have that foundation, it's pretty amazing what you can go out and do and who you can connect with and find other people who want to support you because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there's not that many things like that, that really connect with consumers on that emotional level um, or connect with, you know, wh whoever your target audience is. And I think people are looking for more and more of that. And that's why brands matter. And that's why brands stand out and do well over time um, because they develop that relationship. They think long-term about who they're talking to and how they're talking to them. It's not transactional. It's not, you know, about the, the business case first. It's about, uh, you know, standing for something more. And, and I think that's why you're seeing a lot of emerging brands really break through uh, industries that, that have been dominated by, you know, old stodgy competitors for a long time. And that, that's certainly the case in our category. You know, we compete against the S brands, Simmons, Serta, Sealy. Everyone knows them, but they don't stand for anything. And, and I think that's why they're going to lose share over time. They don't, they don't mean anything to customers. And uh, for us, we, we always said we want to stand for that best night of sleep possible. And as long as we do right by our customers around that and keep that authenticity, I, th I think the brand will do well. And that means other great brands uh, will want to partner with us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the idea of how important, and we talk about this all the time at Travis Manning Foundation, the importance of relationships is second to none, um, 100%. And, and being able to have authentic conversations about not just what we do and and what we're trying to accomplish as an organization about but more about who we are as an organization and so um i think that that is the most important ingredient to any successful business organization um absolutely i want to talk about you a little bit um uh -oh. so you're one of the youngest ceos 
and Fortune named you 20, number 28 on its list of 40 under 40. As of 2018, Casper had an annual revenue of 400 million. What factor have you found your age to play in all of this? Has it been a challenge or an advantage and why? Oh, good question. Um, I think it's been both. Uh, and I, I say that like, um, I, I fully appreciate that uh, with age comes experience and wisdom. And uh, I, I see that. I mean, you're, you're just always smarter because you've lived through more things and you've seen more things and you, you've gotten to, you know, for me, it's surrounding myself with other people who have been there and done that and are super smart and they help me get smarter faster. Um, but you're always learning. And so I, I definitely understand the limitations of, of being young and, and not seeing how things play out. But at the same time, I think there's a, a you know, a, a natural thing that comes with kind of youth of, of questioning the status quo, questioning the way things are and, and challenging them to be better. And, you know, hopefully I don't lose that as, as I get older. And hopefully that's more of a, a personality thing. But I think, you know, you're less likely to be, uh, you know, entrenched in, in your old ways of doing things and more likely to just challenge the way things are done. And, and so I think that's important if you're trying to build something that's different or, you know, chart your own course. Uh, it's just continuing to challenge the status quo. So um, I think, you know, hopefully it's, uh, hopefully I'll remember both those things and realize, you know, there, there are people that are a lot more experienced out there than me and, and I can learn from them and, and uh, have kind of the ability to ask the right questions and, and stay humble about what, what I could learn. Uh, but at the same time, like challenge things and, you know, push the boundaries and, and see where we can do things different uh, when they make more sense. Let's talk about what happens right as the pandemic is hitting. Casper is going public in the midst of financial turmoil within the country. I mean, I guess turmoil with everything. Um, you're going public. And when you went public, um, you were criticized a little bit. Uh, there, it wasn't this, uh, you know, real fresh, here it is. It was, um, you were compared, to, I saw some comparisons to like Uber and Lyft and, and WeWork. And I listened to you the morning you went public. And I think it was, I think it was Jim Cramer, who's not easy. And, and he was, you know, really challenging some of the things that, um, about the company. And you were so inspiring in your answer. And just, again, the vision that you had and the way you talked about the company. If I didn't know you, I would have been like, I believe in this company because this guy's running it. And so talk, talk to us about leading up to that point in the middle of like, one of the greatest challenges our country has seen and, and, and you, and you're going public at the same time. Yeah. It's a, a little bit of criticism is a, a slight understatement. We, <laughs> we were the first kind of, uh, you know, money losing startup uh, on the consumer side since we work and the press had a frenzy on WeWork, and we knew that there was risk that, they would kind of point their attention to us and that's exactly what happened. And so we, we ended up going public on February 6th and that was uh, after months of just really negative press and sentiment around our business. 
uh, and, and, you know, the press focuses on certain things at certain moments in time. You know, we, from my perspective, we're a, we were not even a six-year-old business and we were investing in the infrastructure of our business in order to allow us to continue to scale and build the, the vision that we talked about. So it was the right thing for us to be investing into the business. Um, but, the, you know, the press saw what happened with WeWork and they just jumped all over us. And when you're going public, you're in a quiet period. So you cannot respond to the press. You cannot answer any questions. And so the narratives just build on themselves. So it, it led to a very tough IPO. And, and uh, you know, people jumped on the bandwagon like Jim Cramer and others. And, and you know, that, that's fine. It's just kind of the market forces doing what they do. Uh, and, and people are always skeptical. Whenever you're challenging the way something is done, there, there's a lot of skepticism. And that, that skepticism existed when we raised our first dollar of investment and we heard, no, that's a dumb idea. No, it's never going to work. And, you know, you're crazy to think you can build a cool mattress brand, et cetera. And that skepticism played out right into our IPO. Um, you know, fast forward, we were the last consumer IPO, I think, that uh, went on a physical roadshow because right after we went public, uh, the pandemic hit and, and uh, immediately markets started getting very choppy and sold off and, and started to, to crater. And all of a sudden, uh, no one cared about Casper. We were everyone's least problem. Um, but it, it was just tough because, you know, the, the whole world was, you know, no, no one knew the whole world was afraid of what was going to happen. And so it was a very challenging period for the company and, and not because of the stock price, just because, you know, we, we have employees, we have customers uh, and, and people didn't know what to do. We didn't know how it was going to impact our business. And so, we, we decided to make some really decisive actions because we thought it was going to be a really tough period for the business. So we decided to sh shut down our European business, which we had been investing in for a number of years. Um, we decided to pull back on a number of projects and, and uh, we, we thought that, you know, the pandemic was going to be really bad for business. It, it turned out it wasn't. And, and we've, we've done well um, because people are investing in sleep. People are investing in their home. People do want to get a you know, a better night of sleep and feel as good as possible waking up and be as healthy as possible. So we've actually been, I think, a, a beneficiary, fortunately, but it, it's still a, a really traumatic time. And, and I think that's when, you know, the, we all look to, you know, the leaders of the companies we work for or the leaders of, you know, government, et cetera, to, to help us get through those uncertain times. Uh, and, you know, I, I learned what it meant having a, a stock price that was subject to, you know, everyone's fears and, and, concerns every day and we continue to live through that so that's a a new chapter for me personally you know when you're a private company you don't you're not subject to that day in and day out um so it's, it's a different dynamic but it's it's again like skepticism is something we are very used to as a company um and you know as founders you know pe people are always going to challenge what you see and what you think should happen and over time you know th things should take care of themselves and I, I think that's what i tell people about our stock price and it's what I tell them about about our business and what we want to go build. And so we, we still very much focus on the original mission. Uh, and we talk a lot about how we can awaken the potential of a well-rested world. And we just need to keep going and doing and executing our strategy. And over time that will allow us to be, you know, the world's first sleep brand. It'll allow us to impact millions of people by helping them get a better night of sleep. And we just can't lose focus of that throughout the day-to-day -day noise that happens when you're in the spotlight. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that you said was so fascinating, and it's actually something that I think a lot of people are challenged with. And I think it, it speaks back to really, 
uh, what you said in the beginning, that bias for action, having that entrepreneurial spirit. You said since the first dollar that has been invested in this company, we've had naysayers. We've had people who said, this isn't going to work. And, you know, I'd, I'd argue that a lot of people, probably I would say myself included, you know, I have some very trusted mentors in my life and I will go to them with ideas, um, both personally and professionally about things. And, you know, if I'm hearing no too many times, even if I truly believe in it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more apt to be like, all right, you know what, that's probably not going to work. And I think there, there's something unique about people who no matter what drive forward and, you know, they can take this idea and have so much belief in their vision and themselves that they tune out all the other noise. And I'd like to know if you feel like that's how it was for you with Casper, if you feel like that's how it is for you, how you operate in general. And and how do you get to that place? How do you get to that place to have enough belief in yourself that no matter what, and, and not only that, this is a two-part question. How do you get to that point? And how do you also know how to gauge who you should be listening to and who you shouldn't be listening to? Does that make sense? Totally. Um, and I, I think both, the answer to both those questions uh, has to do with like how you form personal convictions. Um, because there, there are people that I listen to that would help me form high convictions, even if a lot of other people are saying no. And then, you know, there are other people where their input just, I, I don't, it doesn't stick that much with me. So it doesn't lead to being high conviction. And then to the first part of the question, I, I think that's where, you know, it's not about being stubborn for the sake of stubborn and you're always right and everyone else is always wrong. And so I think it's more about staying open-minded. Like, is this something where I should have high conviction because I'm right and, and a bunch of other people are wrong? Or is this an area where, you know what, most other people are right um, because they've seen this and, and I'm not going to have high conviction. So I'm going to move on to a different play. Um, and I, so I think it's more about like staying open-minded and not letting, not letting your ego get a best, the best of you and you're always right and they're always wrong because that's never the case. And also not letting fear get the best of you because, you know, what if could always go wrong. Uh, and, and so that's always a factor. And so it's really that kind of like balanced perspective. And then I think depending on what, what, the question, the decision, the, the choice that you're debating is, is when you should think about like, who are the people that you would really trust to help you with that decision? And it doesn't mean that that person you trust is who you would turn to for every issue, but there are certain people that, that uh, you know, I do trust implicitly, I would turn to, and their advice and feedback are gonna matter a ton. And I'm fortunate that I get to work with some of those people and, and uh, that's great. And I also get to, you know, live with them. Some, some are family and, and uh, it's just kind of taking it all in. I, I am definitely someone who likes to hear a bunch of different perspectives in order to then form my, my own view. And, and rarely do I start like in the high conviction spot. I, I usually get there after I talk to a bunch of people and, and have inputs from a bunch of different sources and then decide like, is this something I should have high conviction on or not? And if I do, uh, you know, it, it would be very hard to dissuade me. Yeah, I love that high conviction. And absolutely, you know, you and I actually share, um, there's, there's an individual in my life and your life, it's the reason that I met you. Um, uh, and he's someone that I have, I turn to for advice. And, you know, he's one of those 
small, that small group of people that when he says, eh, maybe you should think about this a different way. Like I listen and I'm like, okay, yeah, you're, you're probably right. So, um, I, I love that. And I love this idea of, you know, having that high conviction after you've kind of gauged from that trusted group of people. Um, it's, it's a, you know, and that, and that kind of, I think gives you and empowers you to say, okay, you know, this is the right way to move forward. You know, even if you have the naysayers that may have high profiles out there, um, knocking you down, um, you know, you know, that at the end of the day, you have a, a trusted group of people that know you, know your value, know your vision, and um, believe in what you're putting forward. And I'd like to know a little bit of how that plays out in your personal life. Um, you know, you have a, what, close to 600 employees, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And you're running this business, I, you, you've just gone public, how do you balance work and, and your home life? And um, what are the decisions that you make to make sure that you find that balance? Yeah, you know, I, I'm probably not very good at the balance. Uh, I work a lot. Uh, I, I like work. Uh, I get to work with great people. And so it's enjoyable most of the time. Um, that said, I, you know, one of the silver linings of of the pandemic uh, has been being home a lot more. And we have an 18 month old son who, you know, I get to hang out with every day. And so I do think one of the, the lasting impacts of the pandemic uh, are that people are going to have a, a different perspective on kind of the work-life balance. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely don't think or want, you know, the, the amount of work travel that I had before to ever come back. And I, I think people are going to definitely think about prioritizing their schedules and being home more. And, I think we, we see how functional life can be on Zoom and uh, that, you know, flying across the country for a, a lunch or a dinner meeting is, is not necessary or practical. And the, the balance that we get to strike is, is spending more time with family and having more meals at home, et cetera, and love that. So, uh, you know, that said, I, I still, I work a lot. I'm, I'm, you know, generally always connected and, and responsive. And I think that's important for how I work and, and for the team around me. Um, but I enjoy work most of the time, and and uh, and uh, also now I'm enjoying more time at home than ever before. So it's uh, it's it's a nice silver lining, and I, I think I'll I'll be working from home, you know, kind of permanently going forward, more so than I ever did before, which was basically never. Um, <laughs> and so it's uh, again just always uh, reinventing the way that you know things can be better, and and I think the kind of work life balance is a great question, something we should all think about as you know, offices do reopen and, and some parts of life go back to normal, but it doesn't mean everything has to go back to the way it was before. Yeah, I, you know, it is kind of crazy to think, you know, just like you, I had uh, insane travel um, pre-COVID. And I think now back to some of the things where right now, you know, you could say like, hey, let's just jump on a Zoom call for that. But before the pandemic, it was like, well, I've got to be in front of this person. Right. Like this is a this is a must do. And if it's me flying to the West Coast for 24 hours, I'm doing it. Right. You know, and it didn't even it didn't even register to me that that was just crazy. And it wasn't at the time. Right. I do think that we have found, you know, we we're going to find this balance as a country, frankly, for 
how we can operate in, and I don't think it's, it's going to go back to the way it was, at least not in the near term future. Um, I think it is going to be a little bit of a change and a shift in how we operate uh, just in terms of working and, you know, I think the working from home also brings its, its, its own unique set of challenges. I have, um, you know, I like when my, my kids will run up to me and I'm on a zoom call and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm working and they, they can't, they can't break through that, that difference. If I'm at home, you know, and they need me, uh, they're, they don't understand that like, no, I'm working. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm liking the home time too. It's been, it's been, um, I think something that we've all been able to settle down and, you know, take a step back and realize the importance of, you know, that home life balance. Totally. I saw a funny thing though, the other day I saw a meme and it's, and it was one of those things because, and, and I actually laughed about it because it was, uh, talked about, you know, when you said that you were going to, uh, if I had, if I had six months off or if I had some time off, I would get all these things right. done. <laughs> and it's like, surprise, you all got that time off. What'd you get done? Right. So, Nothing. <laughs> um, so, all right, well, let's, let's wrap this up with my final and most important question that I asked to all of our guests. And that is in all of this, in this crazy journey that you've been on um, since before graduating the University of Texas off Austin, you've certainly and no doubt have developed your own sense of resiliency. You know, I mean, to, to uh, take on these new challenges, uh, you, you have to be able to be resilient, to bounce back um, to the naysayers, to those that say that your idea, your product isn't gonna work. And tell me, what does living a resilient life look like for you? It's a great question. Uh, to me, living a resilient life uh, means that you, you can never be complacent because life changes around you and you have to be adaptable to that change. And so I think, uh, I think it's something where you have to get comfortable in a, a state of constant change and constant reinvention and, and adaptation to what's going on because uh, the, the world doesn't sit still, life doesn't sit still, things are going to change. And so to me, the, the key to being resilient is embracing that change and being ready for whatever life throws at you. I love that. Embracing the change and, and being ready for what life throws at you. And certainly life will throw at us its share of challenges. Um, nobody is void of that. Um, but I love this conversation. I loved learning more about you know, your, your rise to where you are now. And I encourage everyone, this is my own, you know, personal perspective. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for, I, I'm, I'm going to say, gosh, I think I may have been one of your early customers. It's been probably about five or six years now. Yeah. And um, I love it. We actually, um, in true fashion to your statement that the business has been doing pretty well during the pandemic, we ordered two Casper mattresses during the kids. And so I encourage everyone to check out Casper. And we didn't talk about it too much, but Casper is not just a mattress company. It is a sleep company. They have some awesome products on there outside of just the mattress, everything from dog beds to um, infusers to awesome pillows, sheets, blankets, and everything else under the sun to give you an incredible night of sleep. So check it out. 
And Philip, thank you so much for coming on the Resilient Life podcast. It's been awesome to hear your story. Thank you so much. It's super fun. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life podcast. What an awesome time today talking to Philip Krim, talking to him about his entrepreneurial spirit, um, where that's led him. And frankly, the biggest thing I took away from everything he said was to have a bias towards action. And I think whether you're in the business world, both personally and professionally, we can all have a bias towards action to move forward in our lives. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the Resilient Life podcast.